If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the year-end wrap-up for the Bogosity podcast for the year 2023, the year of the sunburned penguin. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's look at a summary of the most amazing and the most horrific things that happened this past year. There was a lot of stuff regarding Donald Trump, much of which, of course, we'll have to wait until the Idiot of the Year segment, but we did start off with Naomi Wolf very nicely apologizing for her role in spreading the misinformation the news media and the Biden administration spread about January 6th, going against her previous positions about it once more footage was released and debunking the narrative. She also apologized for believing in spreading Russiagate and the insurrection conspiracy theory. If only there were more like her. We had an admission by former CIA director Michael J. Morrell that the letter released about the Hunter Biden laptop, calling it Russian disinformation, was a lie designed to influence the outcome of the 2020 election in Biden's favor, and that it was made at the behest of Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We had the first case against him submitted by New York attorney Alvin Bragg in a case that Alan Dershowitz described as a Foolish, foolish decision. Quote, I think the most important thing is they indicted him when he was out of New York. And that means they could have indicted him within the statute of limitations when he was out of New York. The statute of limitations is way expired. They claimed they couldn't have indicted him because he was outside of New York. But now they've indicted him when he's not in New York. Even Trump's critics were skeptical including Politico back in April, where they covered how Bragg was really stretching the law and the extents of his jurisdiction to file the charges. And that includes legal experts at UCLA, Vox, and other outlets. There are not one but two cases brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith, the first being the classified documents case brought in the Southern District of Florida. This is the one that happened after the Mar-a-Lago raid. Smith has handed the Trump team something like 1.3 million pages of discovery, not including over 200,000 pages of classified documents that the prosecution doesn't even want Trump's team to look at, and they want to blast through this at record pace. But they did want time to pierce the veil of attorney-client privilege by making Trump say now whether he's going to rely on an advice of counsel defense when he can't even know that until he's looked at discovery and not even Smith's own cited cases allowed for such a requirement to happen until after pretrial motions have been dealt with. But he wanted more time to deal with this issue than he was willing to give Trump for millions of pages of discovery. By the way, Trump's lawyers say that Smith's team already violated attorney-client privileges of the grand jury, which was improperly in D.C. instead of Florida, and that they'll be making motions on that in the future. The other Jack Smith case is much more of a circus, being presided over by Judge Tanya Chutkin, who, when presiding over other J6 cases, expressed her conclusion that it was an insurrection and Trump was guilty of leading it. Of course, she refused to recuse herself when Trump requested. It's hard to summarize, but I'll just give a couple of the big points. The first is, does investigating allegations of election fraud 
fall within the outer perimeter of the president's powers? And the second is, if it does, can the president be indicted when he hasn't been impeached? The word of the founders, including the Federalist Papers, oddly enough, even the passages quoted by Smith and Chutkin, all say that the president can be indicted after conviction by the Senate. But according to Chutkin, that doesn't mean that he can't be indicted if he isn't. But there'd be no reason for the Constitution and the other references to use the word convicted if that were the case. If she were competent, she'd know about the concept of the exception proves the rule. If there's a sign that says no parking 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., that means you can park there the rest of the time. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for the times and it would just be a no parking sign. But then Chutkin comes around in her little electric cart and her meter maid uniform and writes you a ticket. But it's 5 p.m., you say, and you point to the sign. She just says, well, that doesn't mean you can park there the rest of the time. Yeah, it does, Chutkin! And adding another issue to this is the fact that Trump was impeached for this and the Senate acquitted him. But apparently, Smith and Chutkin think that when the Constitution says the party convicted, that also means the party acquitted. These issues are being dealt with in the D.C. Court of Appeals. Smith tried to get the Supreme Court to step in and do it quickly, but they turned him down. The reason why Smith wants it done quickly? Because Chutkin scheduled the trial the day before Super Tuesday. Oh, but this case isn't political. Trump is being treated just like any other defendant, Chutkin says. By the way, the number of pages of discovery in this case? Over 14 million. But Chutkin says that Trump's lawyers don't actually need to read all of those. Even though he does, that's the whole purpose of discovery. At any rate, that March 4 trial day clearly isn't going to happen. It stayed pending the appellate procedure, which is most likely going to the Supreme Court regardless of what the appeals court says. Mind you, Jack Smith has, way improperly, continued to file motions as if the case were still ongoing. One more thing before we move on. It may be that Jack Smith isn't legally a special counsel to begin with. An amicus brief submitted to the Supreme Court, and later to the Court of Appeals after SCOTUS denied cert, argues that this is not a constitutional position, and as such, under the Appointments Clause, can only be created by an act of Congress. But Smith's office was created by Attorney General Merrick Garland, not Congress. We'll have to see what the court says about that. All right, moving back to state court, we have the case brought by Letitia James under Judge Arthur Engeron. We covered how Engeron is an absolute nutcase that posted a photo of his nipples to his alumni newsletter, which he edits, which online earned him the monikers Judge Nipple and Judge Areola. One of the most controversial aspects of the case is a gag order the judge hit Trump with after Trump criticized his behavior in court with his principal law clerk, who is sitting next to him on the bench and, according to several attendants, has been feeding him information and even telling him how to rule on objections, basically acting as a co-judge. Everyone absolutely has a First Amendment right to criticize the government, and that includes law clerks. But Ingeron not only gagged Trump, he gagged Trump's lawyers and won't even let them so much as make objections in court and file motions regarding the matter. And despite the fact that the law says no judge can issue sanctions of over $1,000, 
Enguerrand issued one sanction against Trump of $5,000 and another of $10,000. He also sanctioned five defense lawyers, $7,500 each. Before the trial even had a chance to begin, Enguerrand found against Trump and ordered the immediate dissolution of all of his businesses. This is the part where he made insane statements such as Mar-a-Lago only being worth $18 million. The appeals court overturned that, saying, Nah, man, you gotta give him a trial. But Enguerrand is only letting the trial go through on damages and isn't letting Trump defend himself against the main claims of fraud, completely disobeying what the appeals court ordered. By the way, Tishy's star witness is Michael Cohen, a convicted perjurer who committed perjury on the stand again in this case. He contradicted himself several times, and the fact that the trial was allowed to go on after this makes a mockery of the court. That went double, or is it triple, after both Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump both obliterated the state's claims on the stand. Funny how, though, as soon as it became the defense's turn, Ingeron denied ever ruling on the value of Mar-a-Lago and other claims he'd made. He also refused to let them call experts. Closing arguments are scheduled for the 11th. The last one we need to cover is the Fulton County, Georgia case, where DA Fannie Willis is indicting Trump and a bunch of others on RICO charges. You know, the one where they posted the indictment document while the grand jury was still meeting? Weird, though, how a county DA in Georgia can indict him for acts allegedly committed in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and other states. He's not even being charged by the state attorney general. This is also the one where they are insisting on a mugshot, and the press were salivating all over it so they could show how disgraced Trump was. Until, of course, the actual mugshot was released and the whole thing backfired. One day, they'll realize the Streisand effect is a thing. Which is another theme running through all of this. Every time Trump is charged or any other big news comes out, he gets a surge in the polls. And like the others, they're trying to schedule this strategically around the election. Willis wants this one to go on August 5, 2024. All of this is based on the assertion that there were no issues with the 2020 election. Of course, we also covered evidence that was coming out all over the place of massive voter fraud in Michigan and how Pennsylvania voting machines have been swapping votes in various different races. And in Georgia, Fannie Willis herself questioned election results and pushed unfounded election conspiracies all over the place. And then there's the ongoing Georgia case involving election issues, including voter machines wrongly switching votes. Or how so-called charities run by John Podesta, Sam Bankman-Fried's mother, and others deliberately and illegally engaged in Democrat-only voter drives in swing states. Charities are legally required to act in a nonpartisan fashion. And then, Trump-adjacent, you had Douglas Mackey, who was found guilty of memes. He was sentenced to seven months in prison for speech. That was stayed by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and he's been ordered to be released pending appeal. If he fails this appeal, Mackey says he'll appeal to the Supreme Court. But hey, maybe if they indict Trump one more time, it'll make the difference. I mean, as it is, he's already leading Biden in every swing state as polled by Bloomberg. All right, don't worry. The next few aren't going to be as long. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, 
but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Of course, there was still a lot of COVID bogosity, even as the pandemic drew to a close. Scientists are finally able to discuss COVID's origins openly, and more and more of them are becoming convinced of the lab leak theory. Three years late, the Lancet and other outlets were finally recognizing that natural immunity is a thing. As we predicted, police started demanding that people not wear masks so their precious facial recognition systems would work again. New Zealand High Court ended vaccine mandates calling it, quote, a gross violation of human rights. The New York Post covered 10 myths told by COVID experts, including denial of natural immunity, mask mandates, school closures, lab leak denial, and long COVID. We had the FDA, very quietly and with little fanfare, admitting that, yes, doctors can absolutely prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for COVID. That came as the court revived a lawsuit from doctors saying that the FDA overstepped its authority with these campaigns. Of course, the FDA was still saying that ivermectin doesn't work against COVID-19, even as they linked to studies showing that it does. Of course, there are the big questions about what lessons we should learn from all this and what lessons we will learn. It looks like it'll be next to impossible to get good information about what actually did work against COVID since the government and social media companies spent so long censoring all of that information. Retrospective observational studies are probably the best we can hope for. Of course, the big lesson is one we really should have learned a long time ago. Keep authoritarianism out of science. Because if you're being authoritarian, you're just not doing science. Moving over to Ukraine, we got increasing confirmation that the Russo-Ukrainian war was being intentionally prolonged by NATO long after Ukraine and Russia were trying to broker peace. We also saw how, even according to analysts on the left, the Ukraine war was in fact provoked despite claims of the Biden administration and NATO, the claims that Russia was mostly if not entirely motivated by the violation of the agreement made long ago with Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would never expand to the Russian border, in fact, would not move one inch eastward, and this includes U.S. diplomats, Ukrainian leaders, and even Bill Clinton's defense secretary. We knew we weren't being told the truth, but that got confirmed big time in a leak of 300 Pentagon documents showing things like Ukraine's losses are four times higher than Russia's, 
Zelensky was wanting U.S. drones to strike inside Russia itself, and lots of other stuff. The leaks also revealed a lot of crap about how the U.S. was spying on its own allies, something the news media lied about and claimed was revealed by Edward Snowden to WikiLeaks. This was a completely separate leak, but the New York Times article on the matter was stealth edited to remove the falsehoods without ever acknowledging them. Typical. The U.S. government and the banking system stepped up their attacks on cryptocurrency as well. The big news was the SEC v. Library case. They really didn't like a YouTube and social media competitor that was based on cryptocurrency, so once again, the SEC lied and said they were a security by completely lying about the Howey test. The Howey test is a four-part test the Supreme Court said must be the case for something to count as a security the government could regulate. There has to be an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. It's hard to see how any of these apply to Library. For a while, things looked like they were going Library's way. The SEC was forced to admit that LBC had a non-speculative use, and they never could point to any law that Library had actually broken, even though part of their complaint was that Library wouldn't acknowledge the unlawfulness of their activity. Library didn't technically lose the case. The judge granted, guess what, summary judgment, and the SEC fines plus the cost of four years of litigation, which represented somewhere between half and three-fourths of their income, drove library into bankruptcy, another example of how the process is the punishment. Interestingly, the summary judgment only said there were three components to the Howey test, not four. The judge acknowledged that library never represented the LBC token as an investment, but said that a reasonable person would expect to profit from LBC, so that counted somehow. The fact that it had consumptive use also meant nothing, and also, quote, Library is in no position to claim that it did not receive fair notice that its conduct was unlawful, despite the fact that Library was basically begging the SEC for years to explain to them what law they possibly could have broken. So the judge ruled that Library doesn't have a triable defense, so summary judgment it is. That just left damages, but interestingly, during the damage portion, the SEC admitted that the LBC token isn't a security. Library tweeted, We have not met a single honest or fair actor in the SEC. We have met numerous liars and psychopaths. Hide absolutely everything you can from them legally and never cooperate or talk to the SEC. So, emboldened by that, the SEC decided to go after Coinbase. The SEC sent them a Wells notice warning them of impending enforcement action. This was two years after the SEC reviewed their business model, said it was okay, and approved them to go public. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong had tweeted, Going forward, the legal process will provide an open and public forum before an unbiased body where we will be able to make clear for all to see that the SEC simply has not been fair, reasonable, or even demonstrated a seriousness of purpose when it comes to its engagement on digital assets. In fact, After meeting with the SEC 30 times, they gave zero feedback on what Coinbase needed to do differently. And their chief legal officer, Paul Gruel, tweeted, After years of asking for reasonable crypto rules, we are disappointed that the SEC is considering courts over constructive dialogue. But if courts are required, so be it. We'll defend the rule of law. 
Even after sending the Wells notice, the SEC wouldn't say what assets they were concerned with. Rule tweeted, It's hard to throw the rulebook at an entire economic sector when there is no rulebook and the people responsible for the rulebook can't even agree themselves what the rulebook should say, even as we have asked for a rulebook. And by the way, just in case you're wondering why these crypto companies don't simply register as securities with the SEC, understand there is literally no way to! By the way, an interesting if unrelated Supreme Court ruling came out of this. They ruled that a lower court must stay all proceedings while an interlocutory appeal is ongoing. So the name Coinbase will have a legacy as a landmark ruling that's already being used in the aforementioned Trump cases to stop all proceedings while Trump's team appeal various issues. Coinbase said in a statement, Tell us the rules and we'll follow them. Give us an actual path to register and we'll register the parts of our business that need registering. In the meantime, the U.S. cannot afford for regulators to continue to threaten the good actors in the crypto industry for doing the same legal and compliant things they've always done. This unfair approach will only drive innovation, jobs, and the entire industry overseas. And we saw a prominent example of that. After the SEC issued an investor alert warning companies about dealing with cryptocurrency companies, saying their actions might not be legal, how that's not defamation, I have no idea. Dash Direct, one of the easiest crypto payment systems ever created, was shut down because the Federal Reserve warned banks that they couldn't do business with anyone even four steps removed from a crypto company. So even though they weren't doing anything even slightly illegal, the government still shut them down. The IP has been bought by a foreign company who is working on resurrecting the service. And they continued to go against Coinbase, Binance, and other crypto companies that aren't FTX. In good news, though, Ripple actually managed to win against the SEC when a federal judge ruled they weren't a security under the Howey test. And another federal judge blasted the SEC in the bankruptcy case of Voyager Digital Holdings, where the SEC objected to Voyager transferring all of their customers' accounts over to Binance. The judge ruled, the objection did not take the position that any particular cryptocurrencies are securities or otherwise explain how or why the debtor's rebalancing activities might be illegal, although it did contain a vague footnote suggesting that the VGX token was one as to which some unspecified issue might exist. The SEC also suggested that the debtor should be required to prove that Binance.us is not operating as a securities broker without registering as such. Once again, the SEC did not actually take the position that Binance.us is operating as an unregistered and unlicensed securities broker. Instead, it just suggested that the debtors had the burden to prove the negative without offering any evidence or even any reason to think that Binance.us actually is doing anything for which it requires further SEC registrations. Oh, yeah, now they're going after Binance. We haven't seen the end of this. It's obvious that this will continue at least as long as Joe Biden is in office. We also saw the attacks on Section 230 continue, and we saw that the consequences were even greater than we thought. Research showed that repealing 230 would even threaten food safety, as it would make it difficult for platforms to host people's experiences with food poisoning from various businesses, as the businesses could just sue the platform over it. 
They may not win, but remember, the process is the punishment, and that's enough for a chilling effect. We also saw a massive attack on it from Josh Hawley, which was so bad even Ted Cruz moved to stop it. For all the dumbest reasons, but still. We saw more confirmation of election shenanigans in Maricopa County, Arizona, when they resisted even a state Supreme Court order to look at signature verification issues. A court filing from a public interest group claimed, While state law requires county recorders to match mail-in signatures with signatures in the voter's registration record, the secretary instructed them to use a broader and less reliable universe of comparison signatures. That means the secretary was requiring ballots to be counted despite using a signature that did not match anything in the voter's registration record. This was a clear violation of state law. The Arizona Supreme Court agreed, saying the statute is clear and unambiguous and the secretary's process contradicts it. Also, as it turns out, they were actually claiming that a signature match as low as 10% is high confidence. Although we don't regularly do cops behaving badly stories, there was still quite a bit to talk about in this regard. We've covered how bail means jailing people for poverty, thanks to legislation pushed by crooked Joe Biden and his white supremacist buddy Strom Thurmond. We started off the year with a report on how 36% of arrestees didn't have the money to cover bail, making it a de facto detention order, pre-trial, and 95% of them were people of color. We also covered the case of the Supreme Court throwing out Aureli Escobar's death penalty conviction after an audit of the Austin Police Department's DNA lab found that the lab was using bad science, technicians were using expired materials, and there was at least one instance of evidence contamination. This resulted in the lab shutting down. We also saw how many victims were re-victimized because when cell phones were seized, they weren't wiped before being auctioned off with all of the victim's information still intact, including their personal information and any data the victimizer might be using against them. Probably the silliest was when cops with the Adams County, Ohio Sheriff's Office raided Afro Man's home on baseless allegations of kidnapping and drug trafficking where they destroyed his property, took $400, and found no evidence of any crime and then sued him for using the footage in his music videos. The worst part about all the cops behaving badly stories, including the numerous ones we didn't cover, is that the Democrats ran away like frightened puppies on the issue of crime and police reform. There was quite a lot to cover on the issue of firearms and the Second Amendment. On a good note, North Carolina repealed handgun purchase permits. On a bad note, Republican lawmakers refused to allow any more such bills through, including no permit concealed carry, because that's enough of your rights for now. Of course, we always have the psychotic game of instantly blaming political opponents for mass shootings. Immediately after mass shootings, the press goes to police and witnesses, wondering if the shooters are victims or Democrats or Republicans, and how they can tie Trump to it. If they can find any connection, however tenuous, to Trump, they'll make hay with it. On the other hand, if the shooter's actual manifesto is one of Marxist socialism, as we saw again this year, the press will refuse to cover it, and anyone who shares it on social media will have their posts and maybe even their accounts removed. 
We've also seen more shootings in the name of anti-white ideology or black nationalism, which was likewise memory hold. At least a New York judge ruled that the state's red flag laws were unconstitutional, but states just still haven't gotten the idea from Bruin that their assault weapons bans are blatantly unconstitutional, including in Washington, Illinois, California, and other states we'll cover in the Idiot of the Year segment. And showing how Republicans suck, too, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed an executive order strengthening background checks and supporting red flag laws. Republicans in the Texas House also banned devices that modify handguns, as well as raising the legal carry age from 18 to 21. We also saw a report from the Washington Examiner showing that over 60% of active shooters were stopped by a good guy with a gun. Not that you'll hear it from the legacy media. Even Israel seemed to be getting the idea as they relaxed some of their own intense gun control laws to allow citizens to arm themselves for protection against Hamas. And speaking of which, we also covered how Israel is now paying the price for propping up Hamas for years in order to prevent a genuine Palestinian government from controlling the region. What a year it's been for AI! It started off with one of the lawsuits we covered throughout the year, and will continue to cover, where Getty Images and others sued Stable Diffusion and Midjourney for web scraping, even though previously the Ninth Circuit had ruled that web scraping of public information was just fine. Similar lawsuits were brought by writers such as Sarah Silverman and George R.R. R. Martin against OpenAI and Meta. The common thread in these lawsuits is, Claims are being tossed out of court like crazy, especially claims the generative AI just clips their books and uses their words in its output and contains little compressed copies of their books, when that's not even close to how it works. The judge called their claims nonsense and said it made his head explode. The remaining claim in the Meta case is one that Meta didn't move to have dismissed because they wanted hashed out in court. Is the use of ebooks to train AI a form of copying, or is it fair use? Remember that if something is fair use, it doesn't matter if you obtain the source material with the creator's permission. The latest grab is the New York Times suing Microsoft and OpenAI. In a briefing filled with sickening platitudes about how wonderful their journalists are, they're whining that the Times was used in the training of OpenAI. They claim damages in the billions, making the exact same argument that was thrown out of the others, that ChatGPT has copies of New York Times articles and just regurgitates them. They also want the court to order the destruction of ChatGPT and any other models and training sets that incorporate articles from the Times. And, again, based on a complete misstatement about how it works, they're not saying it's learning from the articles or emulating the style, they claim it has copies of Times articles and spits them out verbatim. It'll be interesting to see them try and prove that. And although apologists are saying that this is categorically different to the other suits, it really isn't. That's the sad part, though. Even though these arguments have no merit whatsoever, unless the Supreme Court puts a stop to it, they can make things impossible for companies, especially smaller ones like OpenAI, to continue operating due to the time and expense of litigation, exactly like what happened with Library. And, of course, this one was filed in the Southern District of New York, and we know how they are. I have to say it again, the process is the punishment. 
Of course, we had the usual misinformation mongers and the soothsayers of gloom and doom. Ice Cube even got biggest bogani meter for saying AI is demonic. On the other hand, we have artists who wrote into Congress asking them not to kill AI because they use it in their work. We also read an article from an author who likes the fact that his works were used to train generative AI. And really, people have no real clue how often AI plays a role in their everyday life. Of course, we do have AI fails as well, like the lawyer who was fined $5,000 because he used ChatGPT to write his briefs, which cited completely non-existent cases. Turns out, as we found out since the last regular podcast, so did Michael Cohen. In a motion related to his 2018 guilty plea for campaign finance violations, for which he spent over a year in prison and remains under court supervision, he used Google Bard to create a bunch of fake cases to convince the court to end his supervision because he's complied with the conditions of his release. When a very unhappy judge called him on it, he claimed that he didn't realize Google Bard was an AI and thought it was a, quote, supercharged search engine. Of course, even if it was, he still should have double-checked the cases. For that matter, so should his lawyer, David M. Schwartz, who actually filed the brief. In fact, Cohen seems to be throwing Schwartz under the bus, quote, It did not occur to me then, and remains surprising to me now, that Mr. Schwartz would drop the cases into a submission wholesale without even confirming that they existed. Accordingly, when I saw the citations and descriptions I had sent Mr. Schwartz quoted at length in the draft filing, I assumed that Mr. Schwartz had reviewed and verified that information and deemed it appropriate to submit to the court. One more point about our AI coverage. A particularly good addition to review is the one for September 10, where we covered an article in the Hacker News entitled, Everything You Wanted to Know About AI Security But Were Afraid to Ask. Lots of good information there. 2023 was actually a pretty good year for nuclear power. The NRC certified the first SMR, a small modular reactor that can be mass-produced and dropped in on-site, significantly reducing the time and expense of building new plants. We covered earlier in the year when Voctel 3 came online, but unfortunately there was a delay with Voctel 4, which prevented it from coming online at the end of the year. During startup, a fault was discovered in one of the four cooling pumps. They're replacing it with an on-site spare. They don't foresee a problem getting it started up in the first quarter of 2024. There's also good news from the NRC. The approval of the first molten salt reactor. California startup Kairos Power received a permit to build the Hermes Modular Microreactor in Tennessee. The $100 million project should begin this year and be completed by the end of 2026. While it won't generate electricity for the grid, it will be a proof of concept and pave the way for Hermes 2, which will use two of the reactors to produce 28 megawatts of electricity. Microreactors can be mass-produced and used to power remote areas, business parks, skyscrapers, and communities. It will also be able to scale up to the gigawatt output of traditional plants. On the bad news side, Germany apparently didn't learn their lesson and shut down the remaining three plants. Spain seems to be following suit. But not everyone is pleased. Three German political parties have called for a reversal of the policy and are calling for decommissioned reactors to be restarted and new plants built. Which actually is what Japan is doing. And if they can do it, no one else has any excuse. The North Carolina state legislature is labeling nuclear as clean energy 
Governor Roy Cooper has vetoed it. It remains to be seen if they can override. Meanwhile, Poland has announced the construction of 24 SMRs at six sites. On the other hand, we had that article on Real Clear Energy, which was a massive hit piece full of long-debunked myths by Benjamin Zyker, who is very much in the back pocket of the fossil fuel industry. And just for a few miscellaneous subjects, we've seen some forward movement with the Hyperloop, as Transpod showed it easily beat the profitability of high-speed rail. It'll be a while before any actual groundbreaking, but it might be sooner than you think. We talked about California's water shortage and how it's the fault of the government, as a scientific report showed, because they were managing rainwater and potable water flowing down from the mountains straight into the ocean instead of filling the aquifers as it naturally would. And in something we've been following for more than a decade, we covered all the data about how Social Security is reaching the edge of collapse, becoming insolvent in 2033. But the GOP just won't do anything about it. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.bogosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. We did have two silver Cluon winners this year, although their dwindling numbers seem to continue. On the 26th of February, The Verge rightly skewered Twitter, now X, for charging for SMS two-factor authentication. You have to be a Twitter Blue subscriber in order to get the most horrible form of two-factor authentication. The ones you should be using are still free. And on the 10th of September, Reddit user CoolDiscoDan showed how Virginia's new anti-porn ID law could be used to flag passages in the Bible. I mean, seriously, you ever read that thing? That's how big a year this is. This podcast will be divided into two parts. So stay tuned forthwith for our final segment and naming 2024's Idiot of the Year. Forgosity.